Well, as Rhoda said, my name is Teresa Whitfield. I've been a part of the Habits of the Heart community for about seven or eight years. To be honest, I've lost track of time. Uh, but I've been a group discussion leader for three years now. And as Rhoda also said, this is my first time standing before you in this capacity. I'm both honored and humbled to be able to share with you some thoughts from God's word. But before we do that, let's go before him in prayer. Good morning, God. You alone, O oh Father, are deserving of all of our praise. So we lift up our hearts to you this morning and thank you for who you are. Thank you for each woman here. Give us teachable spirits. Show us how we can be more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So there's a song from the mega band Fleetwood Mac called Go Your Own Way. It was released in 1977 and became the band's first top 10 hit in the United States. The chorus reads, you can go your own way, go your own way. You can call it another lonely day. You can go your own way, go your own way. The song is basically, basically about love and loss and going your own way when things don't work out the way we want them to. But what in the world does this have to do with 1 Samuel chapters 11, 12, and 13? Well, as I was preparing to write this talk, the song kept coming to my mind. I hadn't heard it in years, but I found myself humming the chorus off and on for days. And then it hit me. How many times have I gone my own way from what the Lord has told me to do or not to do? Ouch. And then it reminded me of Samuel, judge, prophet, priest, kingmaker. And it also reminded me of Saul, the first king of the Israelites. Today, we're going to hear a tale of two men, one who went God's way, the other who went his own way. But before we do that, let's take a little trek down memory lane to recall how we got here. We remember that Hannah dedicated her son Samuel to the service of the Lord in the footsteps of Eli the priest. We remember that the sons of Eli the priest were worthless and the Lord ultimately rejects Eli's household. We remember that the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant in battle and its presence wreaks havoc on the gods and deities of the Philistines. We remember that the Ark is returned to Israel and Samuel and Samuel judges the Israelites. We remember that Israel cried out for a king in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 to 7. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. We remember that Samuel, the prophet, priest, and judge, warned against this. But God eventually told Samuel to obey their demands and give them what they wanted. Saul is eventually chosen to be king in chapter 9, and in 10.1, Saul was anointed as king by Samuel. He was publicly recognized and confirmed as king in chapter 11. Oh, there were high hopes for this king Saul. He did have some initial success in a battle against the Ammonites. It was clear that the Lord was with Saul in those early days. Let's talk about that for a minute. In chapter 7, we see that the word save or salvation is mentioned three times in verses 3, 9, and 13. 
keep in mind that when we're talking about salvation in this context, it means salvation from the hands of the enemy, not eternal salvation. Nahash, whose name means snake, is the king of the Ammonites, and he proposes to the Israelites and Jabesh Gilead in response to their offer of a treaty that he would gouge out their right eyes. The people respond by asking for seven days to consider this. They want to see if they can find someone to save them. First of all, the right eye? Why not both eyes or even the left eye? Well, in those days, the men in battle carried a shield that covered and protected their left eye. So they saw the enemies with their right eye. Nahash knew this and knew that gouging out their right eyes would render them useless in battle. Nahash wasn't interested in producing disabled military veterans. He delighted in heaping disgrace upon Israel. He waited, agreed to wait the full seven days to give them a response. He knew there was no way they would find someone to save them in seven days. Another way to heap disgrace upon Israel. So the people of Jabesh Gilead sent word throughout the land, and the people were quite obviously distraught. Saul, the newly anointed king, was coming in from the field and asked what was going on. When it was told to him what Nahash proposed, the Spirit of God rushed on Saul when he heard these words. And verse 6 tells us his anger was greatly kindled. Saul had not yet demonstrated his strengths to be king because he hadn't yet been faced with a situation such as this. That was about to change. All of Israel came out in support of Saul and they came out ready for a fight. Nahash and the Ammonites experienced a resounding defeat. Well, after their victory, they all went to Gilgal, where Saul officially became king. Gilgal is a name the Israelites should remember. The name is mentioned several times in two verses. In the book of Joshua, we are told of how the Israelites placed memorial stones at Gilgal, where they crossed the Jordan when they were entering into the promised land. Now they were there to welcome Saul as their king and rejoiced in God's salvation. As we remember in verse 6, it says that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Salvation in this sense had not come because Israel had a king, but because the king, Saul, had Yahweh's spirit. So we see how the Lord was with Saul here in the early days as a king but it wouldn't remain that way. For now, let's take a detour and talk about Samuel, the kingmaker. Chapter 12 is Samuel's farewell address. At first, I was a little con confused and puzzled why Samuel was giving a farewell address at this juncture, especially since he doesn't actually die until chapter 25. But then I realized that Samuel continued as prophet and priest, but he retired as judge since Israel now had its own king. Therefore, he gave his farewell address as a judge. This address is also a trial of sorts. But who is on trial? There are four sections here. First, Samuel's innocence will be established. Second, 
Israel's guilt will be established. Third, God is vindicated and Israel condemned. Lastly, God's sign will be given. First, Samuel contrasts himself with what he said a king would do in chapter 8. If you remember, he said a king would take and take and take. But Samuel didn't take from the people. His innocence is established. Second, Israel stands accused. Samuel reminds them of those who had previously helped them live in safety, by Samuel himself included. But they clamored for a king anyway. Israel is guilty. Third, by asking for a king to replace God, the people have in effect accused God of failing in his divine kingship. The evidence points to a verdict. God is faithful, but Israel is unfaithful. God is vindicated and Israel condemned. Samuel ends with a call for Israel and her king to obey. Fourth, the judgment is given. Rain and thunder appear on the wheat harvest. What's so unusual about it raining on the wheat harvest? Well, that was the time of year that was typically the dry season. And that caused great fear and trepidation in the people. But it is not the end of the story. God is gracious. The possibility of repentance is still open to Israel. Samuel tells the Israelites that they are indeed sinners, but that they don't have to remain as sinners. The people ask Samuel to pray for them. Samuel says that he would be sinning against the Lord if he failed to pray for them. How many times have we promised to pray for someone and we didn't? I have done that more times than I care to admit. Sometimes we forget or we get busy or whatever the circumstances. But we sin not only when we do what we ought not to do, a sin of commission, but we also sin when we do not do what we ought to do, a sin of omission. And Samuel reminds them that if they persist in doing evil, both they and their king will perish and be swept away. As you can see, Samuel always chose to go God's way. He was a righteous man, a good prophet, priest, and judge who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So now, let's move back to Saul and on to chapter 13. The beginning of this chapter has Saul fighting the Philistines. Is God still with Saul? Let's find out. Well, there is every reason to cheer when we hear that Jonathan, not Saul, struck down the Philistine garrison at Geba. We recognize, however, that Jonathan is the king's son, not the king. So why didn't Saul, the king, go out before Israel? Of course, the press release gives credit to Saul, but we all know who gave approval for the press release, right? It was Saul. He wanted to make himself look good. Well, what really matters is the dialogue that takes place in verses 8 to 15 of this chapter. As a reminder, the Philistines had mustered to fight with the Israelites. Verse 5 says, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore and multitude. The Israelites were terrified and many of them scattered. 
it seemed the Israelites decided to go their own way in fear and in trembling. So we're going to read verses 8 to 15, and I think the words, they're already up on the screen, so just follow along with me. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he, and he offered the burnt offering, and as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Let's dig, dig deeper. Samuel had instructed Saul in chapter 10 to wait seven days for him at Gilgal. When Samuel didn't arrive at the appointed time, Saul took matters into his own hands. He ended up offering a burnt offering to the Lord. And wouldn't you know it, Samuel shows up. When Samuel asks Saul about it, Saul responds by deflecting. He goes on and on about the huge number of Philistine fighters. Saul also attempts to shift blame. Saul tells Samuel in verse 11, and you did not come at the appointed time. It seems that Saul waited into the seventh day, but not the entire day. But even that doesn't matter. Saul was told to wait for Samuel's arrival so he could receive the prophet's instruction about the conduct of battle. Samuel was the bearer of Yahweh's word, and Saul's task was to wait for it. By Saul's action, he was confessing that he felt that certain scenarios rendered Yahweh's word unnecessary. Samuel tells Saul he did a foolish thing and did not do as the Lord had commanded. Samuel charged Saul with disobedience to Yahweh's word and therefore would not enjoy an ongoing dynasty. Saul's kingdom would not continue forever. Furthermore, he tells Saul in verse 14 that the Lord sought a man after his own heart. Saul shows his tendency to be moved by circumstances and to rely on religious ritual to gain God's favor rather than to trust and obey the word of the Lord. And in offering this religious ritual, Saul is also at fault because he knows that it is only the priest who can offer the burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering is the most costly offering there is since it is completely burned up with nothing left except for the skin, which the priest kept. 
Numbers 18.4 reminds us that the priest is to handle all that concerns the altar. Saul went his own way. Saul tried to seek God's favor with an unauthorized burnt offering when Israel's army was outnumbered and afraid. The sadder, more immediate loss, however, is that Saul was now without the guidance of God's word through his prophet. Once again, verse 16, 15 reads that Samuel rose up went and went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul mustered the people found with him, about 600 men. Saul could count his men, but that's all he could do. Saul was on his own. To be stripped of the direction of God's word is to be truly impoverished and open to destruction. This is indeed a sad story of how one man chose to go his own way instead of waiting on the Lord. But is this one man's story or is it our story too? Imagine for a moment with me that you are in a battle of your very own. Some of us are there right now. We feel like we are surrounded on all sides with the enemy or enemies closing in on us. Our people have left us. We feel like we're facing the battle all on our own. We know the Lord has asked us to wait on him. We know the Lord has asked us not to act without him. What do we do? Do we go our own way? There are tragic moments in our lives when shock grips our hearts and minds, when panic starts to set in. We have to choose whether to react in fear or to respond with trust that we know with what we know to be true. God is faithful. So why don't we wait? Why do we go our own way? Is it the stubbornness of our own hearts? Is it the need to be in control of something that feels so out of control? Is it the lack of patience and the I need it right now mentality that causes us to go our own way? Yes and yes. So then how can we respond in faith and with trust? Here are just a few things we can do to make sure we don't go our own way. But let me interject something first. We must remember the love and grace of Jesus Christ. He took the wrath of our sin for us. He bled and died so that we could be saved for eternity. What I'm sharing is not a set of rules. They're just suggestions. But it is out of the abundant love that Jesus Christ lavishes on us that makes us want to obey. First, read the scriptures. Saul knew the word of God up to this point in time. Being of the tribe of Benjamin, he knew the history of the Israelites. He knew what Samuel told him was true. He knew what God had done to rescue and redeem the Israelites. But he chose to go his own way despite all of that. We are blessed in that we have the entire scripture in our hands at any given moment. We can read about the promises of God from the beginning of time to the end of time. We know how this ends. Remember in the Gospels where we read of the temptation of Jesus by Satan? What does Jesus continually say to Satan's attempts to lead him into sin? It is written. Jesus quotes scripture to Satan. 
That's what we need to do when we are tempted to forget the faithfulness of God. Second, pray. Remember when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he do when he was there? He prayed. So we can follow his example. When fear sets in, pray. When the battle feels like it's too much, pray. When you're not sure if you should do something, especially if it goes against the Lord, pray. And then wait. Be patient. He will answer you in his perfect time. Third, create and maintain an inner circle of godly friends. Even Jesus had his own inner circle of friends in Peter, James, and John. My good friend and mentor with whom I meet regularly is always quick to point out how God has been faithful in my life and in hers. She always reminds me of how far I've come in my journey, how God has healed me of PTSD-related depression, how God is continually teaching me his word, and how he is using me in leadership and in service to him, and there's so much more. Find someone or several someones who will do that for you as well. Lastly, remember Jesus. Saul's sin eventually leads to his replacement by King David, which shows us our need for Jesus, the perfect king. As for you and me, Isaiah 53, 6 says it all. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus never went his own way. He was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. He suffered and died in our place so that we would be saved from an eternal death. He was patient and waited on the Lord's time to act, not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. He never acted on his own accord or out of fear or because the Lord didn't show up on time. He shows us what it is to be the perfect king, and he shows us that we can lean on him in our times of distress. If you're not sure you can recount God's faithfulness to you because you haven't yet chosen Jesus to be your faithful king and savior, then consider why you haven't made that choice yet. You can still do all of these things, read the Bible and pray and have an inner uh, circle of friends, but spend time considering Jesus coming into your life and give you eternal salvation and let him show you personally of his faithfulness. As Pastor Drew Hunter recently wrote regarding the Gospel of Mark, it, Mark, shows us the way of Jesus. This refers to Jesus' own way, which led him to the cross, where he gave himself for us in self-sacrificial love. It also refers, uh, refers to his call for us to follow him along the same way of love and self-denial for the good of others. This is a tale of two men, one who went God's way, the other who chose to go his own way. But like Saul, when we go our own way, we miss out on God's blessings. Don't go your own way. Go the way of Jesus by following him. Thank you.